So, um, it was hard to be a Christian in the first century. It was especially hard to be a a Jewish Christian because when you became, when you were a Jew and you became a Christian, you lost all of that that you were raised to believe. Not, not all of it did you lose, but you lost those tangible things of the temple and the festivals and the holy days. But not only that, you lost relationships. And not only that, you could suffer persecution. You could lose your home. You could lose your business. You could be thrown in prison. You could be assaulted verbally or even physically. It was hard being a Christian. Phillips writes to us in in his commentary, he said, it had to be worth it to believe in Jesus Christ because it was so costly. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning because I think we're going to discover, as you probably already have in your study, in your small group, that it is worth everything to believe in Jesus. And if the time comes for us that we face those persecutions, we need these kinds of things to hold on to. So let me read our passage for us this morning. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom God appointed heir of all things through whom God also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, it is hard to even begin to talk about these glories that are in these first four verses. Would you be with us today? Would you enlarge our hearts that we get a glimpse of your beautiful son? Would you enlarge our hearts that he becomes even more important to us than he ever has been. Would you fill us with an understanding of how glorious he is by your spirit, and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's an unspeakably beautiful passage. Four verses. Four verses, and we could spend weeks on them. It's it's just... It's just hard to even begin to think how someone could sit down and write a letter with this. It's just amazing. But as I read these first four verses, the the two words that stood out to me right away was God spoke. I love that. I love that because it says a million beautiful things. It says to us that God desired to reveal himself. We could not know the truth about God if he had not revealed himself. 
Did God have to create? Did God have to speak? No. We know the truth that, that for eternities past that God in the Trinity was in perfect love and perfect joy and perfect happiness in the Trinity. God did not have to speak. He did not have to create. We assume that he created because he wanted to share his glory, that he speaks because he desires to make himself known, that he loves, and so he created and revealed himself through his word, his living word and his written word. The testimony of the entire Bible is this. It's God's word, and God has spoken. It seems so simple to say, doesn't it? God has spoken. We talk about it all the time. We say, this is God's word. We say it. But do we really think deeply about what that means? Because if God has spoken, that pow- the power of that statement is full of revelation. If God has spoken, we must listen. Surely it means that much. And it means more than just hear sounds. It means more than just to hear something and go away. It means that we must listen with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because what God has to say has eternal consequences. Because God has spoken. If God has spoken, then it must be true truth. Because he is truth. He knows the beginning from the end. There is nothing that surprises God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He created everything. If God speaks, then it must be truth. It must be a word of power. Because our God is omnipotent. And when God speaks, it comes to be. In Genesis 1, we begin to see that. God said, let there be, and there was. And God saw that it was good. And every day we saw that repeated. He spoke, and it was, and it was good. Whatever God speaks then must be right and just and true. Because our God is holy, and in him there is no darkness at all. You know what happens when you believe a lie? A lie about truth itself? A lie about life itself? We become less than human. We become completely broken because we are separated from God. Because, you know what? We begin living in an untrue world. Because if we are not believing what God has said, it is an untrue world. It's what happened in the garden, isn't it? That Satan knew that if he spoke and tempted Adam and Eve, by disbelieving what God said, that he would win a victory. And he did. It wasn't the final victory, but it was a victory. And Adam and Eve, who had been given dominion over this temple garden, who had been, who was entrusted with everything, they were entrusted with everything. And they had the freedom to to cause it to flourish. And yet Satan said, God had said, don't eat of that tree. And Satan said, eat of that tree and you'll be like God. And they believed a lie. And they were tossed out of God's presence. And the, and the reverberations of that still inflict us today. They believed a lie and it caused destruction. And they were sent out of the garden because they turned from God to a lie. 
And so we begin this letter to the Hebrews by reading these words, God has spoken. But the author has more to tell us about that. He has more to tell us about how God has spoken. He has more to tell us about some distinctions that are present because here is the problem. He realizes that those to whom he is writing are about to believe a lie. They are about to believe a lie about God himself and about his son. What we are about to read here in these four verses, what you studied this week, is essentially the prologue of Hebrews. Remember last year we looked at the prologue of John and it was just amazing. The prologue was just amazing. It just had these sweeping truths about who Jesus was. And then then John spent the rest of his time of the gospel unfolding the themes that he gave us in in that prologue. Same thing here. In these four verses, the author gives us these sweeping truths that he's going to unfold in more depth in the rest of his sermon epistle. But here in these four verses, he lays the foundation that he will build on, and it's an astonishing foundation. It's a firm foundation. The truths that are revealed here, my friends, are mammoth, and they're beautiful, and they're worshipful. So we're going to go through this together, and I know you've been through it with one another in small group, but I don't think we can ever talk about this enough. So I wish that that we could um, sit around and just talk today about this with one another, but let's see what's going on. You all got a handout, I hope. And so I want you to remember the urgency of this epistle. The recipients are in grave danger, and the author is presenting this because he's fighting for them in their faith. So the chart that I've given you show these two ages of Revelation. You had one very similar to it, not exactly like this, in your homework. And it shows us verses 1 through 2a. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we're going to look mainly at two things. And the first thing we're going to look at is there's continuity and discontinuity between these two times. So the first thing we're going to look at on this handout is what is the thing that shows continuity? And you can see it. Your eyes will probably go there because it almost is the same thing in in both of these two ages of Revelation. And it is God spoke. It's what we've been talking about. And, and that is so important. That unity is so important because it's what binds them together. Because they are both divinely instituted teachings of God. God spoke these things in the Old Testament. He spoke these things in the New Testament. It binds them together. They are both divine truths. And so we must listen to them because they're truth. But. There's some discontinuity that tells us how we are to look at them differently. The first way that we are to look at them differently, it tells us that, that the first one was, was revealed long ago. And then the new age of revelation is in these last days. That means it's current. It's still, this revelation is still inf- affecting our hearts. It's still important to us these days, these last days. 
Well, the other thing is it, it shows us the recipients. Well, who are the recipients? In the, old, in the first age of the Revelation, it was the fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. That includes us. It includes the recipients of this original letter. It includes us today because God still speaks through his word to us in his son. And then the last thing it says is, how was this revelation brought to us? And this is the key, isn't it? It says that God spoke to the fathers by the prophets long ago. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And it says nothing more than that. But at the bottom of this, it says in long ago, in the first revelation, he spoke at different times in different ways. You probably talked about this in your small group, so I'll, I won't say much. But it, what that actually means, different times, doesn't necessarily mean time, although it took place over a period of time. But it means that it happened in many pieces. It was fragmentary. Fragmentary. It, it wasn't a whole package. It didn't just fit together in this, this unified form. It was incomplete. It was like a mosaic that you had lots of these pieces and you didn't know how to put them together. It's only put together in the New Testament. That's when those pieces are put together. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't. And then it tells us that there was, not only did it happen in many ways in this fragmented revelation it happened, but it came in many forms. It came in poetry, came in parables, came in dreams and theophanies and visions, but it also came by the law and it came by promise, came through covenants. It happened in all of these ways. And so it was coming in these fragmentary things, but it was also coming in these different ways. And the Old Testament, you see, what happened was it was unfinished. It was true. It was absolutely true, but it was shadowy. It left many questions. The contrast of God speaking to us in his son says nothing more than that. It says that that God spoke to us in the Son. And the silence is intentional. It is to show the finality, the completeness, the simplicity, the clarity of the revelation in the Son. Nothing more needs to be said because it was said through his Son. Now, the question is, why is the Son the final revelation? Well, the rest of what is in this prologue tells us. It's because of who the Son is and what he came to do. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the supremacy of Christ. And what we want to know is, we now look at God's Son and what is revealed about him and why he is this final revelation. Why is he? It's because what is revealed about Jesus is causing us not to believe a lie, but to believe in him because he is the final revelation and there will be no more. Now, I can't possibly extol the beauty of what is revealed here. So we're just going to fly over these truths. We're going to have to run really fast through them. But 
If you just took these truths, and, and there are seven of them, if you took these and one a day, you praise God for this, I think you would be deeply blessed because they are amazing. Now, I'm going to divide these, as you can see on your handout, under the three offices of Christ. There, are some, there were some commentators that did this. I found it really helpful. So you'll see that they're organized. These seven perfections are organized under king, prophet, and priest. That's the order. We'll follow that outline. And so we'll begin with the first two that show us Jesus as the true and final king. And so the first perfection that we're going to look at says this. The Son is the one whom God appointed heir of all things. Now, most commentators believe that this is a reference to Psalm 2.8. And what that psalm says, it's a messianic psalm, and it says this. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It's a beautiful promise. You can have this whole earth here. It's beautiful. But you notice how the author greatly expands what psalm, what that psalm is saying. Because God has appointed Jesus as heir of all things. The things which cannot be shaken are his. Everything is his. Not just the nations, but the whole universe is given to Jesus' sovereignty. That which is seen and unseen that which we cannot even conceive of because we don't know it. We can't understand it, but he is heir of it all. One commentator said, not one particle is outside of his realm. But my friends, and this is the astonishing part is, because of who Christ is and because of what he has done and because we belong to him by faith, he has made us heir with him of all these things. And what that means is that Jesus, when, when the new heavens and the new earth comes, he is opening the whole universe to us to share with him, that we would enjoy it forever and ever. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be nothing hidden. There will be no mysteries. It will be open to us. We will be able to discover things that our hearts could never have imagined, and it will take us all eternity to understand it. And so that's perfection number one. Kingly perfection number two says that through whom God created the universe, Phillips writes this, if you are the one who made something and the one for whom it was made, then you are the rightful Lord and King. You see, God made all things, how? Through Jesus Christ. Because Christ spoke them into being, all the beauties, all the glory, butterflies and mountains, bluebirds and the universe, Jesus spoke them into being. And here's another thing. He spoke them into being from nothing, from nothing. He said, and it was. Everything that we create, whenever there is a creation on earth, it is always from what God created. It is, we cannot create out of nothing. We cannot. And so if we think about this, that, that this all belongs to Jesus, that this was created by him, then we listen to this verse. For 
By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. King Jesus now is enthroned in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is ruling all things. And he awaits the day. He awaits the day when the Father says, Go and receive your kingdom. And at that point, he will destroy Satan and all of his dominions. He will take over for kings and rulers. Everything will belong to him. And and he will make the division between those who belong to him and those who do not. We move now quickly to Christ as the final prophet. And he is the one who perfectly reveals the Father. That's what a prophet is. He is God's final prophet, and he perfectly reveals the Father. That's what the Father, that's what the prophets of old revealed. They revealed the Father. They were revealing the truth that the Father wanted them to know. And so Jesus has come to do that. And so there are three perfections here. There are three things that show uh, the the uh, supremacy of Christ. And the first two kind of go together. They, they kind of do a, a, a dance. They're closely connected, but they're a little different. So we'll kind of look at those two together. And this is what they say. He is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the exact imprint of his nature. And what they're going to show us is one is going to show us more of the oneness of the Father and Son. The other is going to stress the distinction of the persons in the Trinity. So first, he is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the only one uniquely qualified to reveal the Father. Who could reveal the Father but the Son? The glory of the Father is invisible to us, but he is revealed to us in Jesus. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made them known. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus manifests the glorious presence of God. And my friends, if you want to know who the Father is, then Jesus is the radiance of his glory. You see, glory has a brightness, and that's who Jesus is. He is the brightness of God's glory. So if you think that you want to know the Father, then you just look at the Son. And then he is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And you probably looked at this, that that, that word there means the, a stamp that was to impress a likeness on, on a coin. I mean, it showed, maybe showed a likeness, but it couldn't show character. It couldn't show the heart. But Jesus can. Jesus has shown us the very essence of who God is, that He is a true and perfect representation of the Father. And so what he is showing us, he says, if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. You look at Jesus and you can say, so that's what the Father is like. And so we might understand these two perfections and how they work together by remembering that from John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. That's how Jesus shows us the perfect prophet, how he can reveal the Father. But he also does it because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this perfection could actually go with Christ as the true king, but also it goes under prophet because it shows both omnipotence and revelation. It's actually a beautiful perfection. It's something that shows the supremacy of Christ because I think we don't think enough about this, but Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power now. The stars stay in the sky and, and gravity continues to work and, and the planets stay in their rotation because Jesus Christ is holding them there. That's what the passage says. As one commentator writes, it says he sustains and he directs the universe toward the day of final consummation. He created it and now he, he directs it. And the idea is that without sustain, the sustaining word of Jesus Christ, the universe would dissolve into non-existence. But there's also something else about this. The word also shows the idea of movement. And it shows the idea that even though Jesus is holding everything in, the, in their proper place, he is ever moving them toward final consummation. And every day, he moves us closer and closer to that day. Now, the final office of Jesus Christ is his office of the high priest. And and there are two here. The first is, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's a beautiful picture. It says that Jesus came... And he accomplished our redemption. We know that. We talk about that. It is finished was his cry. And with his saving work finished once and for all, that perfect work, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting because, my friends, he will never again be called to come and give a sacrifice to earn his beloved. It's finished and God has accepted and no one else could have accomplished that purification for our sins. You see, the priests of old never always stood. They never sat while in the temple because day after day after day, these, these sacrifices were offered. And then there was that day of the perfect lamb of atonement was offered. And remember what happened on that day? That only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, but before he did, he had to give a sacrifice for himself. They worked on and on, these priests, on and on, but not Jesus. His work was finished. He ascended to the Father, and he sat at his right hand, and here's something. It's so amazing. He opened the way for us back in. What does he do? He beckons us to come boldly into the throne room of grace. He tells us to come and to enter into that. Not so in the tabernacle, because in the tabernacle, it was boundary after boundary. It was meant to keep you out because your sins had not been taken care of. They were only covered. They were not gone. The final perfection shows Jesus as having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
This shows two sides of Jesus' atoning work. It shows his humility in taking on flesh. He took our sins. It speaks of how in his, he was made lower than the angels because he came as a human being. He took on flesh and he was lower than the angels, but it was more than that because he hung on the cross. He hung naked and he was beaten and he was mocked and he was spit upon and he was despised. And he bore our sins and even the father turned his face away. But Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. My friends, that is just a taste of who Jesus is. What the author of Hebrews wants us to take, what what he wanted those recipients who received this letter who were in danger to take away, a couple of things. He wants, Vaughn Roberts says this, he wants them to understand why they don't go back to the old things. He says, because the Bible itself demands to be read as one book. It does. That presents the unfolding story of God's plan to save the world through his son, Jesus Christ. But the Old Testament on its own is an unfinished story. It's a promise without fulfillment. We must read the New Testament if we want to know what the Old Testament really means. And so the New Testament constantly will cast its eye back to show us what it means and how glorious it is what he has done. And get ready, because this year we're going to be traveling back to the Old Testament a lot. And I think that what we're going to be experiencing is we are going to have kind of this Emmaus Road experience. Because remember when Jesus came up to his friends and they were on that road and they were beginning to doubt because the Jesus had been put in the tomb. He had died, and some had said he had arisen, but they had never, they had not seen him, and they didn't believe. And Jesus says to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what had been said about him in all the scriptures. God's revelation in the Old Testament, you see, it was meant to create longing. It was meant to create longing for something more, longing for a king who would rule and protect and conquer every enemy, a king who would rule over all things forever and ever. There would never be another king. It was meant to create a longing for a true prophet who would reveal the truth of who God is, who would open our eyes to see his glory, who would show us the way to God. It was meant to create a longing for the priest who would offer the final sacrifice, the lamb that would take away the sins of the world, who would tear down every barrier, who would destroy sin and death. The thing is, that no one in the Old Testament ever dreamed that God would send his son. No wonder 
in the New Testament, we need no more revelation. It is finished indeed. And we too, with longing hearts, are left longing, but we know who we're longing for. We're longing for Jesus to come back. We're longing for that final consummation. We're longing for the day when faith will become sight. That's our longing. And he is coming. And it will be a glorious day and a glorious eternity because we have a glorious king. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Oh, Lord, we will never end the glory of knowing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for these things. Enlarge our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.